You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Well, good morning. Good to see you. There are things that I love that I absolutely cannot explain. I cannot explain to you why Hunt for Red October is one of my favorite movies. I have no idea. It's like an old, old movie. Is it like the strategy? Is it the writing? Is it like the Sean Connery? Like, be careful what you shoot down here, Ryan. Most things don't respond to bullets. Wasn't that it? Wasn't it good? Is it all right? Sounded like Nixon. I'll try it again later. See how second service goes. I can't explain why Miles Davis's album, Kind of Blue, in vinyl, does what it does to my ears and to my soul. I can't explain to you why I like that. I can't explain why W.B. Yeats's poetry makes me cry like a little girl. I may be alone in that, that's okay, but that's me. There are things I love that I can't explain why I love them, and you have yours too, whether it's a food, a restaurant, a movie, a book, whatever. But the fact that you can't explain them doesn't kill your love for them. It actually deepens your love for them. And so if you know what it's like to love something that you can't explain, you are ready for the second half of Ephesians chapter 3. So here's where we are this morning. Week 7 of our 12-week series through Ephesians. After today, we're about halfway through. And maybe you've caught this, but the book of Ephesians is laid out incredibly intentionally. Chapters 1 through 3, which we're going to be finishing up today. This is the first half. This is all theology. This is all God's doing. Everything that God has done. And then next week, for the rest of the summer, we're going to be in 4, 5, and 6, which is our response to that. And so the book breaks neatly in half. Today, Ephesians 3, 14 through 21, Paul closes out this master portrait of God's work with a prayer. And I love it. One Bible commentator calls this section, Paul's enraptured prayer. Another commentator calls it the prevailing power of supreme love. Still another, get this one, the passionate prayer of an imprisoned pastor. Like, what is it with theologians and like the alliteration? Why do pastors do this stuff? That last one maybe is a bit of a reach, but you get the idea. This morning, we're going to break Paul's prayer into four parts. The first three parts actually are in the first verse of this prayer. We're going to talk about the reason for Paul's prayer, the posture of his prayer, the object of his prayer, and then finally the content of his prayer. This is a dense few verses, and we've got some work to do. This is one of those weeks, though, where I'm going to blow the ending for you. Uh, We don't do this every week, but this is something I just want you to see. Here's where we're going. Living the life that God wants for you starts with knowing the love that God has for you. I think a lot of times we go, well, how am I supposed to live this Christian life? Like, I've got sin that I've been trying to kick to the curb for maybe years. I've got joy that seems like it ran away from me. I've got this stuff just in my life. How am I supposed to live this Christian life? Here's where we're going today. Living the life that God wants for you starts with knowing the love 
that he has for you. So with that, let's get to it. Ephesians 3, verse 14. Here's what he says. For this reason, we're going to come back to this, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. We're going to stop right there. For this reason. For what reason? This is the reason for Paul's prayer. He's inviting us to reach backward in the text. And so just a quick glance in the rearview mirror for where we've been these last several weeks. Last week, he's going, I just want you to be blown away, to be amazed at the mystery of the gospel. Two weeks ago, Brummy taught us, Jesus is our peace, not our circumstances. Week before that, we're saved by grace alone, not by trying hard. Further back, Jesus alone gives us unshakable hope. And then all the way back in Christ, you are, if you go back to Ephesians chapter 1, you're blessed, chosen, predestined, holy, blameless, adopted, redeemed, forgiven, all those things. We get the sense that Paul's kind of like building his case. He's composing a symphony, painting a portrait, creating a recipe, telling a story. And up until now, there's always been like one more little detail to add. The composition wasn't quite there yet. There's always a little counter melody. The portrait wasn't complete. There's always one more touch of the paintbrush. The recipe wasn't quite finished yet. One more thing to taste. The story wasn't done. One little plot twist. But now, here, about halfway through his letter, Paul says, all right, because of all this, he's ready to grab all of Ephesians 1 through 3. And go, all that theology, everything that God has done, because you've been adopted, because of the hope in Christ that you have, because sinners can be saved, because God loves us while we were dead, because in Christ God leveled the playing field, because of everything God has done, I'm praying that. What? Hold on to it for a minute. He's going to get there. We'll get to the content in just a minute. But this is the reason for his prayer. This theologically rich, dense, sovereign work of God that he's been building to over the last three chapters. Let's push this further, though. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees. So we have the reason for his prayer. Now we have the posture of his prayer. It's significant that Paul says, I bow my knees. Bowing was not a very common thing for Jewish people when they pray. It was the opposite of what you expect. Typically, even in the New Testament, when Jewish people pray, they stand. It's a symbol of honor, right? It's like what we would do when a judge walks into a courtroom or when the president stands in front of a crowd or even when like a bride walks down an aisle. You stand because this is a very special moment. But that's not what we see here. Why does Paul kneel? It's actually really beautiful. It's like the full weight of the gospel hope that Paul has for this Ephesian church causes his knees to just buckle. (laughs) He wants something so beautiful for them, so heavy. This prayer is so deep and weighty for him. He's just like, oh gosh. We see kneeling in a few places in the New Testament, and it's always with hard, heavy stuff. Stephen knelt in prayer at his martyrdom. Peter knelt at the deathbed of a good friend. Paul knelt when he said goodbye to the Ephesians a few years earlier. 
Most notably, Jesus knelt in agony in the Garden of Gethsemane before his own death. Even in secular Greek, this word for kneel means, I am so tired, I can barely hold on to this anymore. I just need to sit down to rest. Here's the point. Paul kneels in prayer because he's at a place of deep desperation, exceptional earnestness, sincere intensity. This is Paul going, when I think about all that I want God to do for you, Ephesian church, I just can't hold on. I can't even keep my balance. God, here you deal with it. This is an exceptionally vulnerable place for Paul. Here's how this hits me. I'm going to pull off here for a minute. I wonder if I just pray too safely. Anybody else wonder that? It would be a really tough thing, but it'd be interesting just for you and I to have an eyeball-to-eyeball conversation and go, how's your prayer life doing? (laughs) I saw a stat a little while ago that says that most pastors, most pastors of churches in the United States pray for an average of five minutes a day. And I'm going, gosh, what is that? And it's not about quantity. I know that. It's not about competition and measuring this thing. But I wonder if I pray too safely. I wonder if my prayers are too tame and therefore too lame. Am I really praying the kind of prayers that make my knees buckle? Or am I so thin on my own emotional margin that I keep people's burdens at arm's length from me? What do I mean? You do this. Maybe you do. I don't know. Quickly mentioning someone in prayer so I can say that I did the next time I see them. Anybody else do that? God brings somebody to my mind in a quiet moment, and instead of laboring for them, I just kind of sit back and think about them. It's not prayer. Or maybe in conversation, somebody gets vulnerable. They lower the wall. They open up. They take a risk. They get honest, and I just go like, oh, I'll pray for you. <laughs> Anybody else do that one? Are we willing to carry the kind of burdens that make our knees buckle? Or are we only willing to carry the burdens that we kind of sort of already know how to deal with anyway? (laughs) Am I willing to boldly, courageously labor in prayer on behalf of those that I love? Or am I just checking the box and moving on after a few seconds? As needful as our world is, I don't think we have the luxury of a boring prayer life. I want to pray bold prayers that push past my ability and buckle my knees. I don't want to pray like safe, predictable, cliche prayers that I can manage myself. Anybody with me on that one? So this is Paul's posture. Deep desperation, exceptional earnestness, sincere intensity. So we got the reason, we got his posture. Well, who's he praying to? This is the third detail we need to see here, the object of his prayer. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Have you ever asked, like, okay, well, who should I pray to? It's a really common question I get every once in a while as a pastor, and so I think it's actually worth pulling off here to talk about that. Who do you pray to in prayer? Should we pray, like, to the Father, to Jesus, to the Holy Spirit, or just, like, to God, like, So here Paul addresses the Father when he prays. And biblically, this seems to be a consistent theme. 
Why should we address the Father when we pray? We're going to pull off, talk about this for a few minutes, and then come right back on. I want to give you three reasons why, when you pray, you should address the Father. First, the scriptural reason. Scriptural reason. Because Jesus told us to. (laughs) Back in Matthew 6, the disciples, all 12, were gathered around Jesus, and they asked him, Teacher, show us how to pray. And his answer has come to be known as part of the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, okay, guys, like, you really want to get this right? Pray like this. When you pray, say, our Father. So that's how Jesus taught them to do it. And if that's what Jesus told them, that's good enough for me. (laughs) A second reason, though, why you should address the Father in prayer is the theological reason. That scripture, all throughout Old Testament and New Testament, presents the Father as the member of the Trinity who moves sovereignly in his creation. Jesus echoed this idea again when, when talking with his disciples, he says, ask whatever you want from the Father in my name and he will give you. It's your Father's heart to give you good things. Which leads to the third reason to pray for the Father, what Paul, or pray to the Father, and why Paul does it here. And this to me is the most tender. Scriptural reason, theological reason. I think there's a relational reason. There's this really beautiful verse in Romans 8, and it says this. Romans 8, verse 15. This is Paul writing to another church, and he says this. He says, For you, you didn't receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption, sounds like Ephesians, as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That word, Abba, no, it is not just a Swedish disco band from the 70s. Thank you, Dancing Queen. It's this really tender, intimate, unique word that most English Bibles leave untranslated because there's no equivalent for it in our language. But basically it means daddy. As in, I want to crawl up on your lap and talk with you, daddy. As in, I know that I'm safe because I know you love me, Daddy. As in, I want to be like you when I grow up, Daddy. When a Christian prays, we are welcomed to the Father like a father welcomes his child. Now here's how this stuff hits me. If I'm also worried about my prayers not being weighty enough, I think I'd be a whole lot quicker to talk with God if I knew how eager he was to hear from me. I think I'd run to him a whole lot more often and a whole lot easier if I just knew how welcoming he was. Quick story from our family. Um, I always ask my kids if I could use them as a sermon illustration because that's one of the downsides of being a pastor's kid is you're like rife for illustrations. So I asked Joseph this. Um, A couple weeks ago, he came home from work. He's just launching out into the work world, and he's got his first job, and like he's learning all of those things that you learn at your first job, all the speed bumps, like, I gotta work eight hours? I'm like, yeah. (laughs) Just wait, bud, right? But he had come home a couple weeks ago, and um, I was sitting in the living room, laptop open. I was, interestingly enough, studying for this passage and uh, this message this morning, and I could just tell he had had a bad shift. If you're a parent, you know that look on your kid's face where, like, something just happened. And um, so I'm like, all right, buddy, come on in. And um, so he sat down on the couch next to me, 
and he just unloaded, like just all this stuff. And if you know Joseph, like most of this stuff is pretty deep down in him. Uh, he is not the verbal guy that his dad is. And so this stuff just comes up, just all this junk, the stuff that he's worried about, the fears, you know. And so he sat there and like, I got to just listen to him and I even got to hold him for a little while. It was this wonderful moment. I was so impressed with his maturity and his perspective. Let's imagine a different scenario. Imagine I didn't put the laptop down. Imagine I didn't initiate, I didn't invite. I said, like, you know, I appreciate you, like, you know, reaching out here, buddy, but I've got a church to run. Can you go talk to your mom? Or, you know, clearly something's up, but I've got a budget I've got to reconcile. We'll talk later. Or, like, you know, something's on your heart. I can tell it, but could you just, like, Google it? Google's pretty smart. You can figure it out there on the Internet, right? I think most of us actually, if unconsciously, see God that way, that we're a bother to him. Like, he's got other stuff to do. He's got a world he's got to run and other people ahead of us in line. And maybe we've asked for too much too often. And so the biblical corrective here, half a verse into this section, is your father's heart is always open for you. It is oriented toward you. And because of Christ, he just says, come on in, sit down, tell me all about it. Just being personal, I think I would be a whole lot quicker to talk with him if I knew how eager he was to hear me. So, now, with all of that, I think it's a good idea to lay down a working theology of prayer. Because this is going to give shape and definition to where Paul is going to head next. And so here's this definition I want to throw up on here. If you're a note taker, you can write it down. Prayer. Seeking an audience with the Father by the authority of the Son at the leading of the Spirit. Seeking an audience with the Father by the authority of the Son at the leading of the Spirit. Let's break all this apart. First, seeking an audience with the Father. When I pray, I am addressing the same God who split oceans whose fingers made mountains, who spun planets and stars and threw them up in the sky. That's the God I'm coming to, and I am asking him to move. I'm coming into his presence, asking him to do something for me that I can't do for myself. So how do I get an audience with that God? One answer, because of the cross. And that's the second piece of the definition. I'm coming by the authority of the Son. What right do I have to call that God my Father? That's really presumptuous, isn't it? Who gets me in that door? Answer, Christ alone. So when I pray, there ought to be a consciousness, an awareness, a confession that it's only because of what Christ has done on the cross, that I can approach that God. Jesus made a way for me to enter his presence without fear, but confidently, boldness. That's the gospel. The third piece, seeking an audience with the Father by the authority of the Son at the leading of the Holy Spirit. If you are a Christian, the Holy Spirit draws you into prayer. The Holy Spirit is going to pull you, sometimes push you. <laughs> I am led at the Spirit's conviction when I know that I've sinned and I need to repent because I can feel the fractured relationship that my sin and selfishness has caused between me and the Father. Conviction. 
I'm led at the Spirit's prompting when I feel an invitation to praise God for something. I'm led at the Spirit's guidance when I need to remind myself of the truth of the gospel. I'm led at the Spirit's direction when I feel the need to pray for someone. And as we'll see, that's the case with Paul here. So again, quick definition of prayer. Seeking an audience with the Father by the authority of the Son at the leading of the Spirit. Now, we are one verse in. And that's a lot of ink to spill, or in my case, air to spend on one idea, God as loving Father. But as we go, I think you'll see why laying this foundation is super important for what's coming. So having seen the reason for his prayer, all this stuff in chapters one through three, the posture of his prayer, buckling knees, and the object of his prayer, a loving Father. Now we're gonna get to the content of his prayer. Buckle up, verse 16. He says, I'm praying that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Don't you just feel like Paul's just like riffing on a big giant guitar solo here? It's just this, So Paul prays for three things. Here we go, off to the races. Three things. He says, first, I'm praying that the power of the Spirit would strengthen you. You see this in verse 16. I'm praying that the love of the Son would overwhelm you. You see that in verses 17 through 18. And I'm praying that the life of the Father would fill you, verse 19. We're going to talk about all three of these here in a second. And then we're going to talk about why it's so important that this prayer figures here at the end of the first half of this letter. So first, I'm praying that the power of the Spirit would strengthen you. That's verse 16. This word, to be strengthened, is really intentionally placed. It's the opposite of to be discouraged, which he mentioned earlier, way back in verse 13. To be strengthened means to be made strong or to be made capable the opposite of being discouraged or weighed down. But Paul's not talking about outward strength here, is he? Take a look at the text again. Where does the Holy Spirit provide strength? In the inner man. This means that for the Christian, your strength is not out here. It's in here. Internal, invisible, and at times undiscernible strength is a constant theme for Paul. He says this in 2 Corinthians 4.16. You can just jot this down. He says, so we don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Translation, my life may look like a train wreck on the outside, but oh, inside I am so much better (laughs) because I'm secure in Christ. So this is the first thing that Paul prays for, that we would be strengthened by the Spirit. Quick aside, for those who don't feel strong, I have great news for you. You do not make yourself strong. So stop trying. The Holy Spirit makes you strong. 
He prays that you will be made strong, that you will be made capable. Christianity is no place for a self-made man or a self-made woman. If you're trying to make something out of yourself, stop, give up. Instead, we have to be made strong by the loving hand of a good God. So where does this strength lead? Second prayer. Take a look at verse 18 here. He's praying that the love of the Son would overwhelm us. And he says that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints, and now here he goes, the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. (laughs) Now you're just being poetic, Paul. Yes, and I love it. (laughs) This has moved from theology into poetry, and it's like he's standing in this vast expanse of the world, and he tries to describe how much God loves you. And so he lays this out in four directions. Let's follow him a bit, can we? First, he says, breadth. Breadth, how wide? How wide do God's arms reach? Simply, God's love is too wide to be limited to my failure. Mm. No matter how much you or I might perceive ourselves or someone else to be lost, to be a failure or a lost cause, we wash our hands and we go, that person, I'm done. (laughs) Not so with God. God's arms are always reaching. No one is beyond grace. So much higher than we are. Second thing is length. I want you to discern the breadth, but also the length. How long does God's love go on? Does God's gas tank ever run out of fuel? No. God doesn't quit, which is so unlike our human relationships, which all like have a limit, don't they? Like, I'll be merciful to you, but only for a while, and then I'm out. (laughs) Not so with God. God will never stop loving sinners. How unlike us. Height, height. This is Paul reaching over his shoulder a bit. How high does God lift us up? This is back in Ephesians 2.6. He said he's raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. How high? So high that nothing on earth can touch you. Your identity is secure. Your home is heaven. No one on this planet can take that from you. Praise God. The petty squabbles of the world, the Christian is already above them. Depth. I want you to know the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth. How deep did God go to save sinners? So deep that he stepped into this world, becoming flesh in the person of Jesus, was whipped, beaten beyond recognition, and dying a death that you and I deserved, hanging there open and exposed so that we could have protection and shelter. And Paul just goes, all of that, <laughs> breadth, length, height, depth, that, I just want you to see that. But then in my, one of my favorite parts of this whole little section, Paul interrupts himself Conceptually, he catches himself. He goes, I want you to know all of that. And then in verse 19, that surpasses knowledge, which sounds funny. It's like Paul the theologian interrupts Paul the poet, and he sticks his leg out to trip him up, and he goes, hold on a second, not so fast. You're asking them to know something that's unknowable. (laughs) You're asking them to sit with something that is incomprehensible. And basically, Paul goes, I just hope you never get over this. Why? Hold on to a minute third portion of this prayer, I'm praying that the life of the Father would fill you. It's the last phrase 
in verse 19, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. What does that even mean? Full to the fullness of God. How is that even possible? Another way to see this is that we should become increasingly more like Jesus, which is God's purpose and promise for us. Practically, Paul knows, like, your life is going to have setbacks. You're going to have great days and bad days. You're going to have empty days, lost days, dark days, dark days when sin seems to win. But on the whole, Paul's taking the macro view of this whole thing and going, more than anything, I just want you to look like Jesus. (laughs) Now, All that sounds really great, doesn't it? I would love a Christian life that looks like this. Strengthened beyond discouragement, to know the unknowable, to be this God-centered and God-consumed. Now here's the problem with that, if I could just react personally for a second. This seems so disconnected from my reality. Just as a pastor, okay? Like it's great poetry, I guess, and I don't want to sound cynical or whatever. I really don't. But as great as this sounds, it also sounds impossible. Like, I am so not strong. I am so weak, so unable. I sin every single day, and I doubt God's love all the time. I am nowhere near this. I appreciate the prayer, Paul. I really do. But I'm like, okay, how? How are you going to close the gap, Paul, between, like, this lofty dream to the lives that you and I live. And so as if anticipating our pushback, wise Pastor Paul leans back in his chair, whether he had a chair or not, I don't know. He takes another sip of coffee. That definitely didn't happen. And he writes this. Now to him, now to him, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we could ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. To him who's able to do far more abundantly. Paul actually invents a Greek word here. Literally, it means more than more. To him who could do more than more than more than more. As if to say, you didn't think you could even be saved, did you? And you don't even think this life can be yours, do you? Cool, fine, I'm going to pray for it anyway. (laughs) This Christian life starts with him, depends on him, rests on him, and this is Paul's like final symbol crash. The last stroke of the pen, mic drop moment, and he takes another swig of coffee, maybe. (laughs) So, that's Paul's prayer. That's what this text means. That's the first half of Ephesians done. The end of the theology section of this letter. Having seen what God has done, chapters one through three, now it's on to how we live in response. But before we get there, what are we supposed to do with this? And why is this so important? And why does Paul put it here? It's great that we see what this means, but what does this actually practically mean? So let me back up a bit. Um, It strikes me that of all the things that Paul could have said to close out just this avalanche of theology, this is what he chooses to say. Just this like poetic hymn to God. He doesn't say that they could withstand the spiritual darkness. That'd be a good prayer because Ephesus is a hard place to be a Christian, right? It's pretty dark, but he doesn't pray for that. 
He doesn't pray that they would grow as a church. That's what every pastor wants, right? He doesn't pray that they would stay clear of sin and keep on the narrow path. That's coming, but not yet. Surely there's something more we need to get, Paul. Why not just don't go to Artemis' brothel? Just don't drink the emperor's wine. Why not just don't read the bad philosophers? It's for the same reason that I can't preach, well, just don't have sex till you get married. Just don't drink too much. Just don't watch porn. That's just mowing the roots instead of ripping them up. There is an active response to chapters 1 through 3 that's coming. But if this prayer is the result of three chapters of overwhelming theology, if this is the culmination of all the adopted, saved, predestined, one people in Christ stuff, if this is where all this is pointing and all we get is, Jesus loves me, this I know, then Paul must know something that most of us don't know. And here it is. That right action, what I do in my life, without right affection, who I love, leads to an ultimately empty life. Right action without right affection leads to an ultimately empty life. The problem is not only that I sin, as bad as that is, the problem is, is I love to sin, and I would do it all the time if I knew I could get away with it. It's not a confession. Yes, it, actually, yes, it is a confession, because I'm not going to leave you out there on your own. I'm with you in that one. God's victory is not accomplished when my actions are curtailed, but when my affections are converted. And so here's Paul's point, as succinctly as I can put it. Living the life that God wants for you starts with knowing the love that God has for you. The starting point of killing sin in your life is not tightening the screws on your behavior. It isn't ratcheting down and trying harder, getting into an accountability group or something like that. Rather, the starting point of sin, killing sin in your life, is basking in the immensity of God's love for you. Like, if I could see that, if I could just really just take all that in, if I could wrap my head around that, I wouldn't even want that stuff, and neither would you. If we could really understand how much we are loved by God, you wouldn't run to that idol that you're looking to for shelter. You wouldn't hope in that thing, whatever your version of that thing is, to deliver you. Paul's prayer is built on the rock-solid restorative power of the gospel. It has nothing to do with what I should do or what I should think or what I should be or how I should behave. A gospel that starts with me is a gospel that doesn't exist. <laughs> you want to get free from whatever fear and shame and sin an addiction is wrapped around your leg, great, God wants that for you too. But wrist slaps and shock collars are not going to do it. The good news of the gospel says that the path to healing does not have to run through self-loathing first. The good news of the gospel says that the flourishing life God offers to you doesn't mean that you have to hate yourself first. Paul's making the point that the root of all of our shame that blossoms into self-loathing and all that self-loathing that blossoms into insecurities and all those insecurities that blossom into sin, at the root of all that is that I just don't believe God could love me and he wants to go look at this. <laughs> and so Paul, through the Spirit, says, here, see this. This is what I'm praying for you. The problem today is the same problem back then. The root problem is not what we are doing or not doing. Those are just the symptoms. The root problem 
is what we're not seeing and what we're not believing. That is an incredibly bold idea. How does it change your view of sin to know that the answer for all of it can be found in resting securely in the fact that the sovereign God of the universe loves you as you are, not as you should be? Gospel that says, I am not just a guilty sinner, which I absolutely am. But in addition to that, I am a wayward son whose father just wants him to come back, not to scold him or punish him or condemn him, because the gospel says Christ took all that for me, and despite everything I've done to convince him otherwise, God the Father sent God the Son to restore my brokenness, to bring me back home because he loves you. Do you believe that? I mean, really. Do you believe that the root of all rebellion is lovelessness? Living the life God wants for you starts with knowing the love that God has for you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at ncchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.